You're listening to FabRadioInternational.com and this is Brave New Words. I'm your host Ed Fortune and I'm here with... Cy Lloyd. I'm Ross. And today we're talking about space because we're a genre book show so we quite often talk about space and I really like saying space that way because it breaks the microphone slightly. So yes, uh, we're going to be talking about Seasons of War. We're talking about Seasons of War. The the first heretic. And uh, Star Wars Bloodline. And also Guardians of the Galaxy. So, uh, coming up next, a lovely jingle. Across the world, 24 hours a day. This is Fatboyview International. That was a jingle. That was a jingle. What's up, book, book pickers? <laughs> <laughs> What's up, book readers? Uh, yes. Uh, if you want to be on the show, please get in touch. We are available at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. You can find us on the secret Brave New World Secret Book Club on Facebook. Um, super Secret Book Club, in fact. And yeah, you can we also. Want, we don't want anybody to find it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Except we want everybody to find it. If you are on um, if you are on iTunes, which you might be, please share, subscribe, comment, what have you. Just have fun with it. So, uh, we've got a whole load of sci-fi books in front of us right now. Um, which one do we fancy starting with? Shall we go with the first heretic? We should go with that. Because it's got first in the title. Yep. Okay, so It's we, got dibs. It's got dibs. So, we touched on The First Heretic uh, a little while ago, about a month ago now on the show, uh, when it came out. It's cheap as chips right now, because it's uh, part of the Legends Warhammer 40,000 collection, so you should be able to find your hands on it. It's by a chap called Aaron Dembski-Bowden, and it's part of the Warhammer 40,000 universe which, of which we are fans. Um, so, Space Opera. Is it one of the ones that's been advertised on telly at the moment? It is. Amazing. So Warhammer on telly. I couldn't believe it. Warhammer on telly. Space Marines! Look! Space Marines! Um, it's, in fact, the, the first in the series. And because in the first of the series, the the, the commonly available copy, which is the Hachette um, Legend Collection version, has plates in it. And wow. one of the plates is of the original cover from the paperback, which is of a very heroic-looking space marine being attacked by a very demonic space marine monstery thing. Gorgeous artwork by Neil Roberts. Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Looks a bit like stuff. Venom, doesn't he? The, the, the chaos one. Uh, and an explanation of the the setting, sort of, just in case you haven't an idea as to, to, to what it is you picked up. What it is you picked up. So it's a. Oh, that's not the first heretic. That's no, Aurelius. That's Aurelian, yeah. Aurelian, uh, which is a short story that is also... It's also in this. Also, well, no, it's not in this book, but okay. it's, it's about... It is, yeah. It's the same period. And we've terrible, terrible start to review, because I haven't ex- actually explained what this is. Okay, so the Warhammer 40,000 universe is a very heavy set, thick universe, originally designed to sell you little toy soldiers of blunt-looking space marine model things. Yep. Um... And, and it's they have this, they have the bright idea of if we're going to have a game set in this, we want to produce 
fewer moulds, but sell more medals. So we'll have space marines on both sides. And here came the idea for the Horus Heresy. So, so they thought they'll have a war between the two, and they created the setting, and they've created loads of books for it. And the first heretic is originally it's the fourteenth, fifteenth book they came out with for this for, for the series. But because they didn't really know what they were doing and they didn't plan it that way, they planned it. But then they they've, pl- they've been increasingly planning it. But yeah, originally they thought we'll do about six. You know, the, the trilogy to start it off and the trilogy to end it, and thirty books th- in. 40 books in. Is it? 40 is about to come out. At wow. The recording. So 40, 40 Horus Heresy. Not 40 Warhammer 40,000 books, because there's more of those, mm. but 40 just the origin story. <laughs> just the origin story, which is the Horus Heresy series, 40 books. So if you were sitting there going, well, I don't have time to read 40 books, I had to read maybe a book a month, which is average, about normal, for, mm-hmm. you know, and you're an average reader if, you, if you're, you're yeah. doing well. Um, where do you start? First Heretic is where you start. It's a very good choice for you. You're my first Warhammer book. So, the setup is as follows. There is a guy. He's known, known only as the Emperor. In the same way that Prince was only known as Prince. Uh, but the Emperor is the Emperor of Mankind. And in the Horus Heresy series... <laughs> Prince was his actual name, you know. Yes, well, the Emperor, <laughs> the Emperor's his actual name. That's his name. That's, that's the only name we've got. His parents are really ambitious, right? That, that's on his on his. Well, passport. yeah, his, his brother's Duke, King, and yeah, yeah. Earl. <laughs> on his passport, the Emperor. It says the Emperor of Mankind. Um, so he is the Emperor of Mankind, and he is incredibly impressive. So mankind has gone in the Warhammer. Horus Heresy setting. Mankind's gone into space. We've explored, we've explored, we've had uh, an empire and a civilization, and it's all as these things done, all these things have collapsed upon themselves. It's because of alien barbarians and the usual things that destroy empires, but on a galactic scale. So bureaucracy and being too large and not having enough control. And then this dude rocks up and he goes, everything's a mess, but I'm a demigod. And he is. He's godlike in stature. He walks into a room... He's already like a thousand years old by this point, isn't he? Yeah. Many thousands of years old. Yeah. He's uh, superhuman. Um, Somewhere he's come into mankind and some people say he's existed since you know the dawn of mankind and some say that he's a genetic experiment created only a few thousand years ago and we don't know and it's never explained to us but he's amazing he's the emperor yes and the thing he definitely tells everyone is, is that he's not a god yes it's definitely one who's rule one not a god I'm not a god don't worship me I'm not a god I'm, I'm, I'm just here to get things done sort of thing but he met the guy from Ghostbusters and it all changed are you a god? Well, maybe... Next time someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> There's a crossover there which definitely ought to happen. That's that's basically what happened, I've just yeah, realised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you saying that the Emperor is Ray Stant? Yeah. <laughs> no. No, but... Okay, we, we, we are, we are explaining this terribly. But we digress. We, we do digress a lot. Books, back to books. So... The Emperor rocks along, creates some suns because he's running around. There's a galaxy is very large. He wants some. He wants some versions of himself. I mean, we've all had that moment. One the other are two me's. So he decides I'll make twenty versions of myself, but I'll make them less powerful than me, and I'll give them specific tasks and jobs. Yeah, I mean, there's this is sort of a an insight thing of well, why there are so many, why there are different personalities. 
are they all different refractions of the Emperor in some way? What did they have individual? So we've got this big such? space. Just but yes, we've got this big space opera dude. Mm. He's he's definitely not a god, despite the fact that he can, can command. He's a master of creation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he makes some copies of himself. And due to a disaster in the lab, they all get scattered across the galaxy, which is convenient for the plot. So um, they all have different. Different vibes and, and and they all have different origins because because they were scattered, they landed on different worlds. Mm. And Logar's origin is different so, is is definitely contradictory to what we've established so far. So Logar is is a son of the Emperor, and he is remarkable in an Alexander the Great sort of way. So he lives in a world that's very religious, and he takes over his own world, and he unites his people. Mm. And, and in his flavour he does so by leading the religious cult of the world as well the world has a powerful religious cult and he basically becomes the Mithras style figure the head of yeah. of that world and then this spaceship comes down and the emperor goes hi I'm dad and he's like you must be god because I'm definitely a demigod mm-hmm. because look at all the things I can do let me worship you or father mm. So off Logar trots, and then, and then the Emperor, for some reason, gives him an army. And it's an army of incredibly powerful human beings who can, who, who space marines, who, who uh, you know, a single space marine can conquer, conquer a continent at least. If the, you know, if there's not another space marine equivalent to stop mm. them, you know, they're pretty much unstoppable. So he gives him an army, uh, and then off Logar trots, and he spreads the word. He forms. He t- turns his le- legion into the word bearers. Indeed, and off they go, bearing the word, bearing the word of the Lord, <laughs> up to the point where the emperor realizes that he's made a terrible mistake, and his religious fanatic son has started a religious cult on his name. He's even written a, a like, kind of Bible-y thing mm. um, about you know his dad and how great his dad is, and the emperor's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not not a god. I'm not a god. There's reasons why there's not a god. I've met the gods, as you say, Ghostbusters style Yeah. And they're not nice, and I'm not one of those guys. Mm. Um, I'm not a god. I'm going to blow up this city to make the point. I'm going to blow up this world that you've turned to my name to make a point. Just right. completely nukes a city from all of it. Yeah. Destroys an entire, pretty much destroys an entire civilization to make a point yeah. that he's not a god. Which, as ways of making a point that you're not a god, destroying an entire city with one single but- press of a button is a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So naturally, to the, the to the what's left, the single survivor they find from this city, who's been blinded by the nuclear explosion, becomes a sort of religious figure if, in her own right. The entire legion goes on a religious quest to repent of their sins and find a new truth to right. pursue. Not necessarily the truth the Emperor had in mind, yeah. but she, clearly, if the Emperor isn't the kind of person we want to worship, who, who could we worship? Yeah. And then it goes wrong. What other gods could we find? Mm. Yeah. The one there are some the... questions you don't want the answer to. Warhammer 40,000 is a gothic space opera. And the thing is, with this particular gothic space opera, is the gothic bit is demons. And horrible things that lurk beyond space and time that will eat your soul or corrupt your soul. 
And they want purchase in the real world, so they'll cheerfully, cheerfully corrupt you so they can enter the world more, more easily. Mm. Uh, again, Ghostbusters style. Yeah, very much. Yeah. So, and the the the, the crowning, if like the flaw in in the the, the the logic of the word there is, it's quite simply, well, we seek the truth, and if there are actually demons in the world, if this is how the universe actually works, then that's the what's the truth is. Yeah, and we should seek. Engage with that. Engage with yeah. Engage yeah. with demons. That's, so that's the reality of the world we live in. Mm. So we embrace it. So the first, the first heritage, as horrific as it is, is a story about daddy issues. <laughs> it's a story about seeking the truth. It's a story about the flaws of organized religion. It's a story about a terrible, terrible adventure quest in a kind of Antarctic expedition, but rather than doing an Antarctic expedition into, you know, a very cold place, you're 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 heading to hell to find out what's going on. Let's do an investigation mm. into hell and find out what's there. Yes, it's, it's not the kind of horror story where, you know, well we could die out here and it is, but it's also the kind of horror story where if we survive, things are gonna get so much worse when we get back. Oh, I see. So, so a lot of a lot of the book is is that quest to find new gods. Yes, it? right. it's not just you know going in and finding new gods. It's also when we get when we find them and we come back again. Yeah, and we continue to spread the word. Yeah, what happens next? Well, yeah, and yeah, this, exactly. As, and as we've said, this is the origin of Warhammer Forty Thousand. Pretty much, this is where it begins. Well, there's an option to add Jones vibe with that. What exactly would he have done if he'd brought the art back? Well, we'd put it in a box and put it away somewhere. But that's <laughs> but had it had it. Been suddenly Instagrammed. Yeah. yeah. Yes, had it wiped out the wrong people at, the, at yeah. the end of the film. So, yes, so it's a story about discovering God. And yet, it's also still shitty banging space. It's still shitty banging space. There is shitty and banging going on. There's explosions, there's, there's, there's monsters. Lot. There's lots of huge guys in big armour. Um, yeah. The whole thing is essentially ridiculous. This is the point. The whole thing is. You have to embrace the ridiculous to get on with Warhammer 40,000. And it, it's it's big and it's gothic and it's space opera, mm. um, and that's first heretic, and it's very unlike another origin story, which is pretty much let's Star Wars Bloodlines. Let's move on to Star Wars Bloodlines, which I read a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's by Claudia Gray, who has written other nice things, and she's uh, she's written which was the other Star Wars book she wrote? Did you remember? Oh, I can't remember. It's, uh, I think it's one of the mm. Jedi, Jedi ones. Is yeah. It? Has it got an also by this author section? It does. Uh, she's done Lost Stars as well. I've not oh, read Lost Stars. I've not read Lost Stars. There no, we go. And looks like she's written some other uh, sci-fi and fantasy stuff. It's what What's interesting about it is it is set in a space opera universe, the Star Wars universe, um, which she engages with... Uh, she what she's writing here is an in-betweener she's writing um there, there's a lot of preludy stuff to the force awakens um it's not quite old princess leia from the force awakens this is middle-aged princess leia um she's recently uh, essentially given up her son ben to go off and tour the universe on mad quests with luke and um uh, husband han is off uh being uh, judging races, and she's yeah, and and, and so and, and, I, I think 
You mean as in athletic races? Athletic, well, uh, sorry, uh, uh, spaceship races. Right. No, uh, no, 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 not holding himself in judgment over the peoples of the universe, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I horribly misinterpreted that sentence for a moment there. I mean, judging races sounds like the title of a book, which would be very interesting, isn't it, Sarah? Just because of that ambiguity. Sorry, do go on. <laughs> Um, so yeah Princess Leia is kind of doing her politics thing and um, in a space opera style as Star Wars always is um, the, the the Senate which she's involved in is factionalised uh, independents who are a bit like the independents in Firefly really they want they want they want to sort of uh, they want more individual autonomy for individual systems and planets and you've got the centrists who uh, want to be well, you know, the Empire wasn't all bad. Um, yeah, there was a reason we had a Senate before this yeah, whole yeah. thing collapsed. Exactly, exactly. It was just it was just that Palpatine guy, and particularly Vader. Yeah, yeah. When Vader turned up, it all went wrong. Um, um, and so she's she's engaged in that, and she's on the independence side. And um, there's a lot of politicking going on in this. Actually, it's not. I hate to say it because everyone rails against um, the Phantom Menace politicky side and says, that's crappy, it's not Star Wars. Um, to be fair, it was crappy. Um, I would say more down to execution. Um, Ms. Grey does a good job with it in this. helps you understand that behind empires there are good people and bad people and... The, the same on both sides sort of thing yeah in any system where you've got lots of worlds you're going to have lots of opinions and lots of definitely over things definitely so she does the politicky quite well there are um, sort of moments of, of daring do uh, essentially what's going on is um, the, the centrists are uh, pushing a more centrist agenda and trying to essentially bring things back to the way they were in the empire but without an evil emperor there um, and there, but at the same time, there is a, a conspiracy going on. Uh, basically, after the, the 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 gangsters and the huts fell, there's a new criminal underworld going on. Isn't this the one where there is footage of Leah killing Jabba? Yes, and it's being passed round the, the, yeah. the underground as a kind of. Because she's a hut slayer, as far as I can She say. is the hut slayer, yeah. There's a particular a race uh, in, in, in there. I can't remember what they're called. But they particular, they were basically like slaves under the huts. And she is revered as a hut slayer. Um, and, and one of these guys is the new sort of arch gangster um, who kidnaps her at one point, simply so he can sit down and have dinner with the hut slayer. <laughs> It, so the, 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 there are adventures and daring do, but I've got to say, I would say that makes about a quarter, a third of the book. Right. The other quarter, a third of the book is um, politicking. Which is the really exciting part. Which is course. actually the really exciting part. And the personal stuff that in there is good too. Um, I, I don't want to spoil, but basically a lot of stuff which Leia has kept to herself, that Luke Skywalker has kept to himself, that anyone from the Star Wars films kept to themselves becomes galactic knowledge part way through this book and the way she deals with that and the way the galaxy deals with that is is, is very very well done the high point I would say of the book I'm, go- I'm going to guess that might be related to the title Bloodline is that, is yes. that yes yes it is, okay. yeah, I'm, it in, is. I'm in two yes I'm I, I felt 
teased by Star Wars Bloodline. Yes, it is. And that's all it is. It is a tease. I found (laughs) very teased. I found some of the politicking, because I think think my slightly sneering response to the first, like, when this came out was... um, you know that really exciting bit in the, the prequels where they do politics? Yay! More politics! It's but, done better than that, though. Yeah, it is. It, is. it is. it does feel very American. It does feel a very American political take because it's sensible oh, it politics yeah. and that sort of thing. And can, uh, isn't isn't there a character in here who's got loads and loads of Empire memorabilia? There is, yeah. She teams up. Basically, there's, there's an odd uh, one of the central character dynamics is, is a sort of odd couple vibe. She teams up. She's basically the leading independent um, senator, and she teams up with the uh, young Turk centrist politician. And she basically, you know, the initial meeting when they go on this investigatory mission to go and find out who the pirates are and what they're up to, she walks into his office and it's just full of like. TIE fighter pilot helmets and stuff like that and she just looks around and goes who the hell are you what What? I thought you were supposed to be a respectable guy you you, you worship the empire <laughs> binders binders full of <laughs> <Time> Jesus <laughs> and um binders full of Jedi oh my god anyway sorry yeah so um but they they, they make this sort of odd couple friendship and they sort of they, they, they swashbuckle their way across the universe and find out things about each other they didn't expect, and that's that's the central um, relationship in it actually between her and and this guy who who she thinks worships the empire and what actually he does is he, he like he he just likes order he likes order um, and um, yeah so the, the personal stuff is well done the politics stuff is well done. I've got to say, it doesn't feel that Star Warsy. I don't think the swashbuckle stuff. It, my buckles weren't swashed, um, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, um, it, I think for me, it was the Star Wars universe and the books that attempt to do the Senate Senate political stuff mm. is that it's never you know the Senate political stuff feels like a second edition add on to the to the you know the, mm. it's, it's from the prequels and it feels like. A, bit of it that isn't really I mean it is there in the, the original movies but only for like 20 yeah, seconds it's background it is background it's a lot of background colour um, but it, it's, it's background colour done well uh, there are some you know there's fun characters in it um, and the, the, there are like I say teases there's guys you know from Star Wars Rebels alluded to in little conversations and Admiral Akbar turns up for a few minutes it's not a trap um, <laughs> and it's yeah, it, it, it's good, and it is, it is a big tease, like you say, Ed. Um, by the end, they're alluding to uh, the First Order. Um, uh, that, that That's come up. I, I think if I was ever lucky enough to write a Star Wars novel, which I never will be, um, but if I was ever lucky enough to write a Star Wars novel, I would want Admiral Ackbar there simply to help put up a tent. And, 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 and not do that joke, but just tease it for like a page. He turns up, and goes hi. He's like, yeah, can you get that um, that, that grand sheet? Oh yes, which one? That one. And like, don't do that. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's got a lot to say about um, politics and things like that in it. Like, basically, the, the, the people behind the first order in it are just entitled idiots. Um, Trump. Um, yes. Yeah, um, yeah they just they just got no idea what they're doing, uh, but they've just got this dream and lots of money, and 
<laughs> and contacts this, and, this pretty, and they say the right things to this very kind of interesting I wouldn't say pretty but very interesting sort of world view that doesn't actually work when you actually have to work it yeah yeah but, um, yes so so office space opera talking of so we've done we've done Warhammer and Store Wars Store Wars Store Wars oh they, they, that used to be a comic, not a trade war <laughs> used to be a comic strip in Buster Comic uh, called Store S-T-O-R-E Store Wars mm. and it was a, like a Grenville style corner shop versus a supermarket yes remember this um, but yeah that's not what I was talking about big big shitty banging space so you're not possibly that far off right the book in my hand is Seasons of War this is a Doctor Who anthology mm. which very curiously does not have the words Doctor Who on the title because it's not it's not a BBC books. It's not an official title. This was produced um, for the benefit of a charity. I mean, I'll mention that straight away. The, uh, this is for the, the Caldwell Children Charity, mm. um, and the concept, quite simply, is this is the, uh, an anthology of the War Doctor of Doctor Who. Mm. This is the John Hurt incarnation. This is a book entirely devoted to stories about this incarnation. War Doctor's Peter Davison. Sorry. What? <laughs> Is he a Geordie? No, but I am, and my doctor is Peter Davison. So right, okay. So, the so War Doctor is um, really a Geordie doctor. So it's an anthology. And this is an anthology. Yeah, this is not one. This is not one story. This is many, many stories. It has a number of established names in it from um, from who you may be familiar to as Doctor Who writers. So, um, so Paul, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not going to pronounce his name correctly. Paul Mars. Paul Mars, because it's spelled with a G. Um, so there's uh, George Mann, there's Declan May, there's quite a few established authors in here. There's probably quite a few who aren't established authors in this. Uh, Ed will review the, some of the titles and see if he picks out any names he recognises. Lance Parkin is a name that rings uh, yeah, rings Lance bell. Is. Um, I think he wrote see. the Gallifrey Chronicles. He did indeed. Um, Kate Ullman, of course, yes. Kate Ullman. Um, Matt Barber, Declan May, there's quite a few. Uh, Barnaby Jones, Gary Russell, of course, Gary Russell. Um, and as you already mentioned, Paul Driscoll, uh, Gary Russell. So names within either the fandom yeah. or the actual. Yeah, Paul Sprague is apparently an inspiration for this. He, Paul Sprague was apparently someone who worked at Big Finish. I, I don't know the background of this, but um, I believe he worked with Big Finish, and he passed away a couple of years ago. And so, to some extent, this book is also in um, in memory of him. There's a mm. preface by Nicholas Briggs. Um, oh, I do want to borrow that now. Actually, I've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a. A worthwhile tome. It is a, a hefty four hundred pages. There is a uh, there is a, a comic in here. There's a decent amount of solid artwork in here. But essentially, what they've done is said, "Well, imagine Doctor Who had been produced between ninety six and two thousand five. Imagine John Hurt had had a full mm. tenure, and imagine the Time War was a a series arc that they were pursuing. Mm. What would you do with it? Well, you can chunk that though as a read, can't you? As well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they go through it in in. I mean, a lot of the stories are entirely John Hurt based, but you do get hints of things that came before because you mm. would do because mm. um, obviously the John Hurt incarnation was introduced with future incarnations in in the original series, mm. sorry, in, in the new series with David Tennant and Matt Smith. But this is if you one of the problems that they had there. While yes, he was this aged, you know, gnarled figure mm. in in the in the anniversary special. And obviously, this was his introduction largely. This is the man who would remember being the eight incarnations before him yeah. and how different he was from them. So he's bitter about his eighth incarnation making the choice that made him the War Doctor. I he love has, that short, by the way. Do you remember yeah, the short? The Paul, the, when yeah. Paul McGann returned for it. That was a yeah. gorgeous little thing. But this, I mean, this, this features literally the next five minutes after that scene. 
You oh, see brilliant. what happens immediately after that. You, uh, I mean, this has been produced over the last, you know, a couple of years ago in itself. Now, I mean, okay, it's three years since the, antho- the since the anniversary. It has been produced since then. There have been stories which obviously referred to things in the series as well. So, um, for example, you know, so there is an appearance by Ahila, who was the the one who gave him the the transformation mm. uh, elixir. Um, and you know, it sort of leads you a little bit into, in her direction. You do get a story which remembers a time when he was the sixth Doctor and when he wore a beautiful patchwork coat, mm. and you know, and it, it, when he was you know, a, a thoroughly nice man, and now he isn't. Um, it's kind of mm. the 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 attitude to start off with in this book is you don't call him the Doctor because he's not the Doctor today. No, no yeah. he's not the Doctor. He, you know, I mean, the book has the complication, of course, that in order to refer to this character. You need some form of moniker for <laughs> what, what him. do we call him, man? <laughs> yes. So he goes by a number of names during the book. Uh, you, you do have a couple of stories which, where because he doesn't have a name, you could say, okay, well, this but is this story starting off in first person? Is it from his perspective? It takes you a few pages to work out. Actually, no, it's you know the, he he turns up somewhere else in it because you have this little bit of a problem with naming the character. You don't have something immediately to call him, but you know he does he does acquire a number of names in some cases. He's the Doctor because that's what everybody else knows him as. But he does... Basically, if you want to live, don't call him the Doctor. He doesn't take well to the title. Mm. Um, there are appearances from a bunch of other characters who you've heard of, some of whom you've met. There is an appearance from Leela. There is an appearance from the Corsair. Uh, Davros hey. gets mentioned. Yes. So, you know, we are tying this in a bit with other things. Mm. He does refer to, you know, old times when... Um, you know when he was the first doctor, when he was the f- the fourth or the sixth. Mm. You know, you do get the sense of this is the ninth incarnation, man. He has had eight lifetimes before, but this incarnation is lasting a number of generations in itself, and the war. This is a very long war, mm. and I mean, so a, you know, some of the stories are he's in the middle of a battle and he's you know he's on the front lines. Some of the stories are he's been injured in this battle or he's been out taken out of commission and he's recovering from war you know, from from stories. Uh, and he's performing sort of light duties, but in, if you like, he's pers- you know he's he's sending messages. He's the, mm. the, the commiserations upon you know your son died in glorious battle. He's sending those messages. This being a time war anthology, sometimes he's delivering those messages before the event has actually occurred. But nevertheless, he, and he, mm. there are that's a beautiful but horrible idea. Yeah, yes, there. Are, I mean, there are lots of ideas. One of the other strong themes about this is quite simply what he would do as the dog because. I don't think the series ever went into detail on this, on, on why exactly he quite likes the planet Earth. I mean, there's obviously there's the, is he half-human thing? But other than that, why does he like this planet so much? One of the themes of this anthology is the lengths he's willing to go to to protect the Earth. No, he's not, is the answer to that, that half-human thing. No, he's not. He's not. McGann seemed to think so. McGann's doctor might have been, but then they can regenerate into anything they fancy. Yes. Yeah. They, they, they have, yes, obviously. And at that d- point, d- 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 human. No. <laughs> point, point to Lloyd. Yeah, <laughs> I, I believe. Yes. Point to Lloyd, yes. Um, for the pay of listeners' home, I have just put a finger and I have put one in the air. Um, yes, he's categorically not happy, but nevertheless, he protects the Earth and he is made damn sure that the Earth is going to survive the time war, even if nothing else does, which is. A little bit, odd, but he does. But this is tempering, if you like, the the ridiculousness of wars where anything can happen, and the wars where he has fought this war over and over again. Literally, there are some battles which are which are being repeatedly fought mm. in the hope that this time we'll get it right. 
Uh, but obviously the other side are fighting this war with the same principle in mind. Mm. We can refight this war and we can send in reinforcements back to the beginning of it to try and skew it a different direction as much as we want to as well. So there are a lot of you know, other Time Lords in it. There are a lot of other titles. They do. They are very mindful of we don't want to contradict anything really um, established in, in the canon of the, the new series with, with regard to the Time War. I mean, you could. It's a Time War. Um, but you know, there are no stories featuring the Master because obviously the Doctor doesn't know what happened to the Master. No, and you know, the, he does. You know, there are other references which obviously the Doctor won't go. We don't go into because he doesn't find that out until the new series. But mm. they do go into anywhere else they feel like, and they do own it. They say, okay, well, here's, this is the Doctor. We can define this incarnation. We can play around with it. We can throw an idea at it and make it our own for a bit, which is what you mm. kind of want as well. Yeah. So yeah, there's a. It's an awfully meaty volume. Um, and it, yeah, it does go from pretty much the five minutes after the regeneration up until I mean, George Mann's story features the character of Cinder from the Engines of War novel, which is the, um, the BBC's books yeah. only Doctor Who War Doctor story so far. Which is by George Mann. Which is by George Mann. So there is a, a reference to, to Cinder in it. It doesn't quite go up into the point of establishing you know some of the the hidden weapons of the archive at the moment because that's the subject of Engines of War, the Doctor leading up to that yeah. specific moment. But it is. A very grizzled, you know, this is a man who's been beaten by the fact that the universe is burning and he's got to do something about it. And he's spending an entire lifetime doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> Gosh, that was. So. That so, was sold. That was thoughtful. So we, we've done. Three... So if you. Yeah, so I say you won't find this one in a bookstore. You will have to look around for it. Uh, it's called Seasons of War. It's a Time War anthology, Tales from the Time War. It's edited by Declan May and created in support of Cordwell Children. And it's pretty much been put together by a lot of people involved with the big Finnish side of things. Mm-hmm. And the what I would very politely and respectfully call kind of the superfan writers. The the sort of, you know, George Mountman, Paul Mars yeah, level the- of people who either write for Big Finish or they they've done some level of writing yeah, I mean, obviously, there, you know, there, there are, you know, there's, there's grateful thanks to among other people. You know, there are thanks to many people. Um, you know, it, the, it is an unofficial project, but it is, but quite frankly, if they produce one of these for every other doctor, I think that would also be glorious because mm. you, it's, it's a lovely tome. It's, it's a lovely dedication, dedication to a character who, well, okay, I've only seen the, um, the day of the doctor. Part of 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 the time of the John Hurt Doctor, he has done big Finnish stories since, which I've not yet listened to, but right. I wish I want to. Yeah. Um, yes, this 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 chapter of the Doctor's life, which you thought for such a long time it would be impossible to actually depict any of this. Mm. We don't have the budget to put it on TV because it's that outlandish and impossible to imagine. Yeah. But you can you can do some stories of it. You can put some of it together. At the end of it, it is still you know biped wandering around with a screwdriver yeah. Um, yeah. with a TARDIS but and you can write a story about a war that's constantly changing and constantly altering and you can reset the scene again and again and again the only way you can do that on screen is to do a full Hollywood movie which they've done yeah but yeah as a, as a the limitations of Doctor Who Hmm. And the budget limitations of Doctor Who time war is always was always going to be hard sell on the screen yeah um but talking about the silver screen, sort of, he said, segueing in the... So, I, I did promise at the top of the show that I would quickly talk about the Guardians Galaxy, the Complete Collection. Oh, right. Okay. Volume 1. The Complete Collection, Volume 1. Okay. Well, to be fair, if they make it... If they, it's not 
Yeah, it's not ended. <laughs> there will be more Guardians comics. So I think by this time we know uh, who the Guardians of the Galaxy are, which is interesting because the Guardians of the Galaxy were always pretty much an obscure um, yeah, C list, weren't they? Really, yeah, pretty much C list. So the, let's talk about the book that changed, sort of changed that. So Dan Abnett's Guardians of the Galaxy run, uh, which you can find as the complete collection, there have since been. Other Guardians of the Galaxy collections after the movie, uh, and there's other collections beforehand. So we're talking about the Dan Abnett stuff just to give you a chance to navigate because it's comic they, books. Well, they mm. do. For I mean, whenever a Marvel movie has come out over the last few years, there's usually been a collection come out just before of this is a sampler of this character just mm. so you can get a sense of it yeah. just before the, the trailers come out as well. Yeah. So, so the Guardians of the Galaxy, are, as we all know, Vance Cosmo, Charlie eighty eight. You're all staring at me. Right, as is because... We don't is, know that. The, the, there's, there's, right, there was a team of Guardians of the Galaxy from the 70s, and the idea of them them were they were all... like One was from Mercury and one was from Jupiter, and they were led by a kind of Buck Rogers-style guy lost from time, time who was a kind of space captain America, and they were very much a space Avengers. And they were popular for a while, and I was, as a kid I was a big fan of them, um, and then they kind of just drifted. It hit the nineties. It all became about V-shaped women and you know A-shaped men. And slowly <laughs> but surely, you know, they kind of as the, that stars that stars popularity kind of drifted. And they just didn't go back to. They could do star stories and space stories. Marvel were more interested in doing gritty Punisher, Venom, street stories. So yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy kind of felt the wayside. And Marvel have always have always wanted to return and always wanted to do their cosmic stuff. Because, you know, Silver Server, the Galactus, space is where it's at for a lot of the Marvel Universe. So they decided to do a big space story where they did a big space tidy up. The thing that comic books do is because you have lots of artists working at the same time mm. and doing lots of stories, you occasionally do one big story where you kind of tie off all the, the leads. Tidy it up. So what they decided was this. Um, there's a place in the Marvel Universe called the Negative Zone. In the Negative Zone... Um, Sometimes wake up in the negative zone. I do as well, <laughs> uh, especially if uh, especially if I've been snoring the night before. Um, Ooh, but anyway, <laughs> so we're sitting on the couch, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, so we we've got uh, the the negative zone is a space that's full of horrible, horrible alien insecty things that you can go to by creating a negative zone portal. During one of the other big story, Marvel story events, they started putting prisoners in there. They thought, well, I know, we've got a version that's a bit like space hell. Well, just yeah, put yeah. naughty people in there because it's really hard to leave. Unfortunately, the people who ruled that thought, well, that's an invasion. We don't like that. They used that as their pretext to try and destroy the galaxy. So a big swarm of giant alien insects led by a creature called Annihilus, decided to take over everything. Um, there is a spunky resistance of all of the Marvel space characters that you've forgotten about. Right. And this is the genius behind the original Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, Dan Abnett uh, worked on the series of series of books called Annihilation, and you had characters such as Rocket Raccoon, Drax Destroyer, Groot, Gamora, Adam Warlock, Mantis, etc., Quasar, and so on. All these characters 
were all in this big, massive space war. Huge, operatic, uh, literally, you, you'd open one page and there'd be this giant swarm of alien spaceships and then you'd turn the other page and then there'd be the defenders on the other side. Mm. I'm, I'm uh, glad that you've said all this because the title Guardians of the Galaxy makes far more sense in that context than it did in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was just MacGuffin at the end of the movie that made them the Guardians. Yeah, we've got to include the title somewhere. In the yeah, movies, yeah, yeah, we yeah, did, yeah. But this so, makes far more sense. So you've got all these little resistances, and you've got these little stories running around, like Nova. Nova's doing his own thing. Quasar's mm, yeah. doing his own thing, and all these little characters are being dropped in. At the end of it, the Guardians of the Galaxy are pretty much formed as it's a squad of people who are really good at what they do, and they're not anyone that you would expect. So no one expects Rocket Raccoon. To, to, to stand up to the plate and save everything but he does mm. on the back of his mate Groot and it's hilarious it's brilliant mm. and we get all of these characters and we get this vibe for it once that storyline had been done they then wanted to kind of cohere that into you know, we wanted to know more about the squad so the original Guardians of the Galaxy uh, the, I say original the Dan Abnett Guardians of the Galaxy run what they essentially do is they establish the, they they talk more about their base, they talk more about who they are, and they also shout out to the original seventies Guardians of the Galaxy who are now lost and unstuck in space and time, right, and have become sort some sort of reality kind of un, a kind of unstuck thing that can end things. And one of the big things about the Guardians of the Galaxy the seventies version is there was one character who could see lots of different possible timelines. Yeah, and yeah. they were constantly shifting and changing. And occasionally, they would turn up and go, "Danger, danger! We must not allow the the, the Badoon to take over this planet," or and so on. So, uh, yes, what the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book does is it picks up decades worth of space stories, ties it up in a nice little space war ball, and then adds to it some other ridiculous space concepts. So you've seen the movie that giant head that they're in. The nowhere, yes. Yes. nowhere is a dead space god. Yeah, yeah. He's a celestial. Hmm. Um, that dog that licks the collector's hand is eventually. It's a Russian is that space Micah? dog. Uh, no, he's called Cosmo. Cosmo. Okay. Uh, and there is no, there was no Russian space program dog called Cosmo. Okay. Uh, he's an invention, right? Uh, that Dan Abner had to sign off on. Okay. Because uh, he was his original character. But in the comics, he's a telepathic space dog who runs the space station. <laughs> and he's very sarcastic as well. And they kind of. Oh. So, yes, um, you should definitely check out the dynamic run of Guardians of the Galaxy. If you've got a spare weekend and an access to comicsology, you should read all of the Annihilus as well and the Annihilation Wave. But it will take you all weekend. And expect to see some really weird and bizarre characters. Moondragon and Quasar. Moondragon starts off as a as a martial artist style character who just evolves into a dragon. Moondragon. And and she has a girlfriend who is the new who's who's the new version of Quasar, who is a person of quantum bands and cosmic awareness and this sort of thing. Uh, it's really Really, Moon Dragon sounds like someone's Instagram handle. It really does. It's, <laughs> the 70s. it's really out there stuff. And the genius behind modern Marvel and it's Abnet and it's Bendis and it's a bunch of other kind of big name comic book writers who are doing superhero stuff is that what they've done is they've taken all this craziness and they've bound it together into something yeah. that's coherent and fun. And it's exactly what they're doing with Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's true. It does. It does give it a. 
sort of a, a realistic shape in Bloodline. It does. It, it's, it's sort, sort of, of what uh, they've done with Seasons of War as well. In the fact that they've are we tying them all together? Yeah, we might as well. What they've done with Seasons of War is they've kind of they, they've given us a backstory. We don't need a backstory for the Time War, but we've got one. Yeah, <laughs> and the same with the Forty K novel, actually. Yeah, it's oh, origin um, stories. We have a theme. We have a theme. We have a theme. We did it. We had to do it at least once. You know, we didn't mean to have a theme, but <laughs> you know the thing we haven't covered. What we, we haven't covered Star Trek. We haven't. Shall we interview someone who's involved in Star Trek? Let's do that. Let's do phone that. Up, let's phone up Dayton Ward and see what he's got to say for himself. Dayton Ward, welcome to Brave New Words. Good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are. How are you doing? That's for everybody. I don't know who you're listening to. So, what new exciting books do you have out now? Um, let's see. Well, right now my most recent stuff is um, I just recently did a novel for uh, based on the series Twenty Four, uh, the television series. I did a prequel novel uh, that that takes the character of Jack Bauer well before all the events of the television series, and that was a lot of fun to write. It was also much different than the kind of stuff I normally get to write. Uh, I do a lot of Star Trek uh, fiction for pocket books here in the U.S. And uh, so my other recent release is a Star Trek novel that ties into the 50th anniversary of the original series that we're celebrating this month. So been busy, been busy. Do your 24 novel fit into the world of 24? Well, they, um, it was interesting. I was originally going to write a novel. I had originally been contracted to write the novel as set between the events of the last television season and the miniseries in that gap on the run. Um, so we know the character pretty well at that point. He's He's been through a lot, and he's definitely a hard character to write for at that point. Um, however, once I turned in my outline, the people at Fox asked that I retool the story and make it a prequel, make him more inexperienced, make him a little more rough around the edges, a little more raw. And that intrigued me because I wanted to get into a little bit of what Jack Bauer was like before he became Jack Bauer, you know, with the capital J. Um, so he's much more inexperienced at this point. He's sort of on his first mission where things go sideways and he's on his own. He doesn't have a support network. And uh, I was able to set it in the past so we don't have the benefit of modern technology that you know runs rampant through the show. So no cell phones, no GPS, no internet, none of that stuff. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was it was it was kind of it was uh, it was interesting to be able to deconstruct him just a little bit. Uh, not too much though because I'm still a fan of the character. Wanted to do it right for the fans. So, Jack Bauer Year One? Like Jack Bauer Year One, I guess you could call it. Um, maybe not that bad, because he's, you know, even, even back then in the CIA days, he still had some experience. He was, a, he was a former soldier and a former cop. So he had some street skills and some street experience. So there was, But he just hadn't become the CTU Jack Bauer yet and hadn't faced all of those things we saw him deal with it during the show. So uh, I was still able to find some uh, rough edges to smooth over. What's the difference between writing for Star Trek and writing for 24? Well, I get to curse a lot more. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, the, the two shows are completely different. I mean, it's definitely 24 is, is much more action-adventure, thriller, suspense-type uh, storytelling. And, uh, of course, the, sh- the conceit of the show is that every hour ends on a cliffhanger, so that was kind of hard to uh, translate to the printed page. Uh, I didn't follow the one-chapter-equals-one-hour format too rigidly, but I mean, it does take place over the course of a 24-hour period because you just have to do that. Uh, that's sort of an unwritten law. Um, 
but writing for writing for one character versus an ensemble like Star Trek, you know, there's a big difference right there. Um, where I get to play with multiple points of view and multiple characters in a Star Trek setting, a lot of this book was from Jack's point of view. Uh, in addition to the bad guys and the other people that I threw into the mix. How do you get into that twenty four vibe? That kind of tense filler. 24 style vibe that it's famous for <laughs> no but i only had 24 hours to write it no uh <laughs> yeah yeah no um i didn't uh it was fun to write because i'm such a fan of the show i was i was on board from the first episode and i watched it all the way through to the bigger end um i've read all the novels and i've read all the comics and so i was i was very steeped in the jack bauer lower um so it was very fun to be able to do a project that gets set before all of I mean, I think I think chronologically, I am the earliest Jack Bauer story now. What can you tell us about the Star Trek 50th anniversary work that you're doing? Well, we uh, we teamed up with a couple. Of, my writing partner and I, Kevin Dillmore, we collaborate on a lot of our writing, or a lot of Star Trek writing. Um, we teamed up with two other writers, uh, Greg Cox and David Mack, and we came up with a trilogy uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the show. And so the story takes place during the five year mission with Kirk and the gang in their prime, and uh, the, the name of the trilogy is called Legacies, and the, the, the conceit is that the captains, the different captains of the Enterprise uh, have passed this little secret from captain to captain over the years and kind of safeguarded this, this bit of alien technology that, if it got out, could be bad news for everybody. Uh, and, of course, as things are wont to do in Star Trek novels, uh, things go horribly wrong at some point, and our heroes have to go in and fix it, everything. So. The challenge was trying to, to, to was trying to tell a story that hadn't been told before and could thread in between all the different aspects of Star Trek that we're so familiar with, and yet bring something new to the table and celebrate everything we love about the show because we're all huge fans of the original television series in particular. Um, so we, we we hope we did well. We hope we uh, saluted Star Trek properly on its fiftieth birthday. They are a lot of flavors of Star Trek now. Which one do you prefer? Oh, the original. I love the original series. I grew up watching the reruns uh, when I was a kid in school. Um, I wasn't. I was born while the show was still on the air, but I didn't. I didn't come to it until it was in reruns. Um, so I used to watch it every day after school, and I watched the cartoon on Saturdays. And I I played with the toys and read the comics, and uh, eventually stumbled my way into writing for Star Trek. What is the difference between tie-in and original work? What are the the subtleties and changes that you have in your writing style? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's not any harder or easier. I think it's just a different set of challenges. I mean, you have a you have an established universe, uh, and in particular, Star Trek with a very rabid, very loyal fan base uh, and a very protected fan base. So uh, you have to make sure that you are representing the brand properly. That's how I look at it, anyway. Um, so it's you know you want to make sure you're doing right by the fans uh, and you're doing right by the characters and the premise. Uh, that's so that's, but that's the way it is with any tie-in license, uh, Star Wars or any game license or anything. I mean, those the people who follow that material are very loyal and very particular about their tastes. So uh, you want to please them, make it feel like it was worth the effort. Uh, but as far as rules or challenges or limitations, uh, I don't, I don't consider writing a tie-in limiting. Um, I, I think that, that the parameters that are established for you are a challenge. Uh, but it's definitely different than writing your own stuff, sure. Can you take the U.S. out of a U.S. enterprise? Is Star Trek truly international? I, I would like to think so. I would like to think it's an international uh, 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 premise. I mean, I don't know that we do the best job of it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, can you take the British out of Doctor Who? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
I think it's it's. I mean, it's the idea is that it's yeah, sure, it's an American production, but I, I mean, we we definitely want to appeal to a global audience. What parts of Star Trek would you like to explore? I'm, you know, I'm really uh, kind of eager to try backing up. I, I I mean, not not so much Enterprise, but even before that, like that period between the first contact with the Vulcans and what happens when Enterprise premieres. That that period of about a hundred years. I'm kind of curious to see what we did during that period of time. Uh, in the Star Trek world, uh, it, it's been explored here and there in, in, in little little dips and drabs, but I don't think anybody's actually taken the time to write an entire novel that touches on that period. And I'd like to try that. How have the rebooted movies changed things for you? For me, not much at all, because we're not uh, the license that I work under with Pocket Books. Uh, it only handles the the classic uh, material the, or the prime timeline, as we call it. Um, the, the the newer films are a separate entity, and we don't cross the stream, so to speak. Um, so um, I, I haven't had a chance to write for the characters, for that iteration of the characters, uh, or that, that setting. Um, I'd welcome the opportunity, because I have I enjoy the J.J. films. I thought they were fun. Um, definitely different. You know, definitely not the same Star Trek I grew up with, but um, I had a lot of fun, particularly with the most recent one. And if an opportunity came along to write in that setting, I would jump at it. Star Trek fans are pretty unique. Oh, what do you have to bear in mind when writing for the Star Trek audience? Well, I mean, it's it's different. Different fans look at different things. I, I imagine that the, some of the large discussions, you know, are center around how well it fits within the canon, or how well it is consistent with how much how consistent it is with uh, events shown on TV or on film. Uh, if you make a reference that's incorrect, or if you, you know, you, you make a mistake with chronology, um, you'll you'll raise the ire of one segment of fans. Um, if you're if your technical specs or descriptions are off about a particular ship or piece of technology, you'll attract that set of fandom. Um, but, you know, that's fine. That, that, that keeps me on my toes. And, in fact, somebody just pointed out a mistake that was in our most recent book. And I, I sat there looking at the message on the Internet board, and I just shook my head in utter disbelief that I did that. <laughs> I said, I can't believe I, I made that mistake. It's such, a, it's such a rookie mistake, and I did it. But, um, you know, so you have to own up to it and move on try to do better next time what's the story behind the star trek engineer core books oh wow um that was the brainchild of editor john ordover when he was still working for pocket books uh, apparently microsoft had come to him and this is back in 2000 uh they were about to premiere their microsoft e-reader device so this, we're talking in the days of palm pilots and things well before kindle and he wanted the people that were running this wanted to exclusive Star Trek content. So John and another author named Keith DeCandido created this series kind of on the fly uh, as, a, as a concept to sell to Microsoft. And once they got that idea approved, they started hiring writers, and it became an ebook novella series. Uh, they released a little novella about 30,000 words every month, and they did it over, what, 70-odd installments. So I think uh, I think the problem with that series is it was about ten years too early before because now ebook everybody reads ebooks so we were kind of ahead of our time there. Who is your favorite Star Trek character to write for? Um, I like Captain Picard. I've been doing a lot of Captain Picard lately. Uh, I've written two Next Generation novels almost back to back, so I've had a lot of time to get into Picard's head again. And so I, I tend to and plus now with the way Pocket Books works, um, you know, we're allowed to take the characters well beyond the events of the films and television series. So I've had a chance to really dive into Picard post movie. Uh, you know, he's entering another phase of his life right now in our, in the in the books. So I'm having a lot of fun exploring that. Will you ever stop writing Star Trek books? Man, I hope not. <laughs> 
I, uh, I, I mean, sure. Eventually, you know, something will happen. Either the the license will end, um, or another publisher will get license, and they will want to hire other writers. Um, but as long as someone is willing to have me, I'm certainly willing to write Star Trek because it's just too much fun. Probably more fun than I should be allowed to have. If you could save one piece of art, a document, a book, a piece of music, whatever, so it would survive, outlast the death of Mankind's son, what would that be? Oh my goodness, that is a heck of a question. Um, one piece of art, or one document, or one book. Wow. Um, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, definitely nothing of mine. <laughs> nothing of mine would, would be relevant to, to that. Uh Work of art. I don't. I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I don't know. Um, the pyramid. Maybe the, the pyramids. Only because surely there's an answer for those things that we haven't yet figured out. Maybe somebody will be able to figure out why they're still here. So maybe they're the key to it all. I don't know. What one piece of advice would you give to a 16 year old version of yourself? <laughs> Learn how to tell people no more often. Um, or stand up for yourself more often. Uh, I was, I was, I was not, uh, I was not the, the the strongest, toughest kid on the block when I was when I was that age. I got pushed around a lot because of my size. So uh, I would like to tell him to, you know, don't be afraid to stand up for yourself more often. Simpsons or Futurama? Futurama. Vulcans or Romulans? Uh, Romulans. Truth or beauty? Uh, truth. Jason Ward, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. That was lovely. It was. Yeah. I think I think we've run out of time. Yeah, we'll have to say goodbye. Yeah. Um well go on then. I've been Siloid. Bye bye. I'm Groot. And I'm Ed Fortune. Uh tune in next time when we will talk more nonsense. But for now, goodbye. Starburst Radio, the greatest radio show in the universe. Every Wednesday, 9 p.m. till 11 p.m. Exclusive to Fab Radio International. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Don't be scared. It's only the Death Star destroying another world. Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present... Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested.